From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Monday, November 26th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. As Americans shop on this Cyber Monday, we're going to hear about the dangers on the other side of the global production chain. Today, textile workers in Bangladesh are angry after a factory fire killed more than 100 of their colleagues. Many of them, when they saw the bodies of their own colleagues and friends and relatives, they were shocked. Also, how the schedules of Western retailers contribute to problems at factories such as the ones in Bangladesh. These stories and much more, just ahead on the world. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Most of us are aware of the global chain that delivers the products we purchase here in the U.S., but we may not be as aware of the conditions under which those products are made. Today, while many Americans focus on Cyber Monday sales, the news from Asia invites reflection. A fire killed more than 100 workers inside a textile factory in Bangladesh over the weekend. The building was owned by a company that supplies retailers, including Walmart and IKEA. Today, thousands of Bangladeshi textile workers rallied to demand better safety standards. The local fire chief said the factory that burned had no emergency exits. The BBC's Anbarasan Itharajan is in the Bangladeshi capital, Dakar. He says people there are in shock. This is the worst ever accident in the clothing industry here in Bangladesh. More than 100 people, 112, uh, some people say even it could be more. So the number was quite staggering. And the way people died also affected many other workers. There are tens of thousands of workers in that particular area. And many of them, when they saw the accident, when they saw the bodies of their own colleagues and friends and relatives, they were shocked. And this never happened before in this scale of uh, this disaster of this magnitude never happened. That's why there is so much of anger, frustration and also sadness among the workers. What is known, even though there's no official investigation yet, what's the latest that uh, we know for sure? Initially, the fire service people whom I spoke to earlier, they were talking about poor electrical wiring that could have you know, triggered an electrical short circuit and a fire could have started from that point. On the other hand, some also talk about uh, some worker or any factory employee leaving a cigarette butt somewhere and that triggered the fire. But still, it is not clear what caused the fire. What we know is that the fire started on the ground floor and it spread very rapidly. It started going upwards and most of these workers, they were trapped in one of the floors. I spoke to a few workers um, yesterday when I was there at the site and they were saying like we were just simply trapped and most of the bodies were found on the third floor because people could not go up and come down. We know that this factory used to produce clothing for Walmart. That's according to Walmart officials. We don't know if they still do acquire some of their clothing from this factory. But is there pressure that comes from companies, for instance, U.S. outlets, that source their goods from factories like this? Is there pressure that they respond to, that the factory owners respond to in terms of reasonable working conditions for employees and safety? 
There is no doubt that uh, the standards in uh, most of these garment factories here in Bangladesh have improved over the years thanks to the pressure from the Western buyers. Because if the Western companies, the retail uh, shops, if they don't put pressure on these factories, I don't think uh, they would you know, dramatically improve the safety standards. And even a few months ago, major Western retail shops and the fashion brands, they had a meeting with the Bangladesh Garment Manufacturers Association, and they've been urging them to consider revising the pay structure for the workers. So they have been urging these companies. I was talking with uh, one of the factory owners, is also a representative of this uh, Manufacturers Association. He was talking even soon after the incident they are under too much pressure from the Western buyers to uh, urge other factories which are not following any of the rules to immediately implement their recommendation. And the situation has improved. You know, a number of accidents have come down, but still, you know, these kind of accidents do happen. So is the weakness then in the Bangladesh government itself? The government has been uh, putting pressure on these factories as well. But however, you know, the garment sector here, it's a very powerful sector and uh, they wield quite a lot of influence here in this country. Um, many people here would say the Western buyers would have more influence on these garment manufacturers and the exporters rather than the local government. Of course, there may be people who might disagree. At the end of the day, it is the duty of the government to set regulations and also it is duty of the government to make sure that they are being implemented. The government says it is doing whatever it can and it is also urging the industry uh, to follow their own regulations. The BBC's Anbar Asan Etharajan in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Thanks a lot. Thank you. When it comes to buying the goods produced in textile factories, such as the one in Bangladesh, trends have changed in recent years. One key factor is the emergence of something called fast fashion. The term fast fashion refers to the way big retailers such as Zara and Gap work. They want to turn fashion designs into inexpensive products in the shortest time possible. The concept also calls for rapidly switching the designs being produced in factories. But those quicker turnarounds can mean tough work for textile employees in Asia, Latin America, and Eastern Europe. Lucy Siegel writes a column on ethical living for London's Observer newspaper. She's the author of To Die For, Is Fashion Wearing Out the World? Lucy, fast fashion, what is the advantage for retailers to make clothes this way? The advantage for retailers is that consumers can't seem to get enough of fast fashion. They can make things uh, very cheaply. They can buy them in bulk. Trends move through very quickly. They're not necessarily stuck with old stock, with old inventory. It's a very speedy and it can be a very lucrative uh, business model. And how does it affect the workers in the textile factories? What are they being asked to do? Fast fashion is actually predicated on low-paid garment workers being treated badly and being put in dangerous conditions. So, for example, we have a situation where massive, massive orders, maybe for a million units of one particular garment, so in one of the factories that I looked at, an order was placed for one million pairs of what was called city shorts, which was a trend from a couple of seasons ago. And what happened was that this order was placed in a factory, which somebody went to audit, they went to look around, and it all looked fine, it ticked all the boxes, the fire escapes were all operational, the workers seemed happy. But what they didn't do was analyse the capacity of that factory, which could actually only produce 
around 10 to 20,000 units within the time frame that that order was specified for, which means that as soon as the Western buyer has left, that order is subcontracted, and this is where the problems start. So this is not anybody's fault. I'm not saying that evil evil companies are saying, you know, we, we know this is happening, we want this to happen. In fact, I believe they work really hard to try and make sure this doesn't happen, you know, in 80%, you know, 80% of the time. The problem is that the business model is broken, and when you look at the way that this global army, the cut, make and trim army uh, and the conditions that they have to produce this fast fashion in, something is not working and how many more tragedies do there have to be before we turn around and say it's unacceptable? And fast fashion, the fast part of the fashion, it's not just to have inexpensive clothing but it's because the, the, the retailers are saying look, we want to have a certain kind of pocket one week and then literally the next week they might change it or change a design or decorative uh, item and that's in part what's putting pressure on these factors and of course the factory workers. Yes, fast fashion is turbocharged. So it's about the micro trend. You know, one week there might be a certain sort of embellishment, a certain sort of cut, which is really hot and everybody wants to buy it. The second week, it might be something completely different. So we used to have, you know, traditional seasons. We had uh, spring, summer, fall, winter, and those were the fashion seasons. Now, those now have as much in common with fast fashion, with, you know, street fashion, with the high street fashion, as Gregorian plain song has to contemporary music, i.e. absolutely no relevance at all. Um, The fashion world has been revolutionized by high street fast fashion. And now we see uh, some companies bringing out, you know, maybe about 40 to 50 collections a year. I mean, this is unprecedented. And it does put a lot of pressure on the system. However, you know, fast fashion, to, to, to give it its due, actually breathes life into a very stagnant high street. The problem for me comes when fast fashion is conflated with cheap and driving that price down, always driving the margin up and driving the price down. And this is where you create this alliance, which is very, very difficult to create. And people, even the big retailers, haven't yet proved to me that they can make this work without exploiting someone or something within that chain. Speaking to us from outside London, Lucy Siegel, who writes a column on ethical living for London's Observer newspaper. Nice to speak with you. Thank you very much. Girls playing with toy guns, boys playing with baby dolls. That's the picture on the cover of a Swedish toy catalog just in time for Christmas. The company behind the catalog is Top Toy. That's the Swedish franchise for Toys R Us. The catalog is the latest move in Sweden to create a culture of gender neutrality. Natalie Rothschild is a freelance journalist based in Stockholm, Sweden, and she's been writing about the issue of gender neutrality. So, Natalie, you pick up the catalog. What do you and other Swedes see when, when you open it up? Well, Top Toys uh, company this year have decided to switch things around for the Swedish edition of a catalogue. So we have girls playing with guns, we have boys playing hairdresser. Now, you said that this particular catalogue is attempting to be gender neutral. Does Sweden have a set of regulations that guide advertising? There is no law that advertising has to be gender neutral, but there is a body called the Advertising Ombudsman, which people can file complaints with if they find that an ad is insulting or offensive. And what happened with this company that's put out the gender neutral toy catalogue for Christmas, they ran an ad, television ad, that received two complaints, actually. But just after those two complaints, they had to stop running the ad because they upheld the complaints. Uh, And it's not a particularly 
offensive ad it's for um, um, toy uh, tattoos and it shows boys having their their arms tattooed with these football images and then a voiceover says oh we also have disney tattoos cars for the boys and princesses for the girls and a couple of people apparently felt it was offensive enough to file complaints with the ombudsman and they upheld those complaints who gets worked up about this kind of stuff? I mean, it doesn't sound like it's a groundswell. What's behind it? No. I think it comes from academic sections of society. There's media commentators, some feminists. Uh, perhaps it's also the kind of next stage of uh, queer culture debate. It's kind of gone a stage further in Sweden than it might have in other countries. Where else do you see it in Swedish society? Well, it's particularly affecting children because it's affecting education. We have preschools in Stockholm where uh, the teachers, they don't refer to their gender. They will refer to them by their first names or as buddies. Um, they won't say he, she, he is late for school. They'll say our buddy is late for school, for instance. We had the Swedish Bowling Association. They decided to merge male and female tournaments uh, in the name of gender neutrality. We have a new uh, pronoun in Sweden, which is an alternative to he and she. Which is, uh, which is hen, H-E-N. Which is hen, yeah, exactly. Pronounced like the bird uh, in English. For instance, I, read, I just read an article about the person who complained about the advertisement. The author of the article did not know the gender of the person who complained, so wrote hen instead of han, he or hon, she. Now, since you've been writing about this, Natalie, I wonder what your own take on this is as you watch this movement unfold. My own take on this is that I feel it goes too far when it's directed at children because children don't relate to gender relations and gender identity in the way that adults do. And you're uh, changing education to become something that is not just about learning subjects because every subject gets reinterpreted within the frame of, of gender neutrality. Natalie Rothschild talking about the movement toward creating a culture of gender neutrality in Sweden. Nice to speak with you. Thank you. Why Germany's bringing Hitler's ideological book Mein Kampf back to bookstore shelves later on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The U.S. and Mexico have a new agreement to manage water from the Colorado River. That deal gives Americans more water during times of drought. And in times of plenty, Mexico is going to be able to store excess water north of the border here in the U.S. This agreement has been praised on both sides of the border, especially by conservation groups. The world's Jason Margolis explains why. The Colorado River runs 1,450 miles. It starts in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado and then winds its way through Utah, Arizona, Nevada, and California. It crosses the border into Mexico and ends at the Sea of Cortez. Or, more accurately, that's where the riverbed ends. The water stops flowing about 75 miles shy of its natural conclusion. 
As urban areas and agricultural demands have grown upriver, both in the U.S. and Mexico, the area downriver, a vast expanse called the Colorado River Delta, has paid the price. Patrick Graham with the Nature Conservancy in Arizona describes the way the Delta once was and now is. The Delta at one time was enormous. If it were in existence today, I would speculate that it uh, would be one of the eighth wonders of the world. It was that massive and impressive a place. Uh, Today, it's basically a dried mudflat. It's been like this for nearly a half century since the Glen Canyon Dam in Arizona was closed in 1960. Some water does reach the delta during exceptionally wet years, and groups like the Sonoran Institute have been buying and delivering some irrigated water to the delta. Francisco Zamora directs the group's Colorado River Delta program. He says when his group planted trees last year on 50 acres in the delta and provided a tiny amount of water for irrigation, the trees quickly bloomed. It's really amazing how fast they grow and how quickly they produce habitat. We've seen many species of birds using the habitat, another wildlife, mammals, and, and the bobcat. And There are a few beavers you know, we've seen in, along the river. Again, that's from a tiny amount of water. Under the agreement reached this week, more than a thousand times as much water will be added to the delta over a five-year period. This water will come from Mexico's share of the river, more specifically from Mexican farmers who are willing to sell back some water on the open market. Overall, the plan calls for Mexican farmers to give back about 3% of their water allocation. This loss should be offset by planned improvements to irrigation canals in Mexico. There's another source of water that'll be coming to the Delta. Under the five-year agreement, there will also be a special one-time-only burst of water sent downriver. This water is being collected and stored north of the border, and when it's released all at once, it will mimic a natural springtime flow from a wet year. Francisco Zamora says it's not hard to predict what will happen. It will create a functional ecosystem that will benefit the species, and that's You know, that's what we learned. The delta is very resilient. You add water and the habitat come back, the birds come back, the wildlife come back, and that's why the delta is a good example of hope. Zamora talks optimistically about the regeneration of endangered birds and fish in both Mexico and the southwestern United States. He also talks about the resurgence of commercial fish and recreational opportunities in the delta. The way I describe it is we are kind of reconnecting the people with the river. And while this is undoubtedly good news for the conservation movement in Mexico and the southwestern U.S., the amounts of water being restored to the delta will be far smaller than what would have happened naturally, say, 150 years ago. The magnificent delta of old will likely never be restored, at least as long as people are around. Pat Graham at the Nature Conservancy says the new agreement is a first step. But it's a good first step. Because for the first time, the environment has been factored into these water management decisions at this scale. And it's not only important ecologically, but I think symbolically to provide the opportunity to restore the river, the delta. The new agreement could begin delivering water to the delta as early as next spring. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. You can see the dried mudflats that are the Colorado River Delta today and what small restored areas of the delta look like. We've got pictures and video at theworld.org. This week, there's a new hearing in the case of Bradley Manning. Bradley Manning is the Army private who leaked thousands of classified documents to the website WikiLeaks. 
Manning's court-martial is scheduled to begin in February. If he's convicted, he could be sentenced to life in prison. First, though, there is the hearing. It starts tomorrow before the military court in Fort Meade, Maryland. The role's Arun Roth will be there. He says that Manning's legal team has filed a motion to try to keep their client from ever facing that court-martial. They're going to argue that the whole court-martial should be thrown out in its entirety. The entire case against Bradley Manning should be thrown out because of what they're saying was his mistreatment in military prisons early on uh, during his confinement. He was treated so badly that it rises to the level that under military law, in this case, that, that they should just throw out the entire case and basically that he should be able to walk free. Because they're saying that he was illegally punished pre-trial. What kind of treatment are they saying was illegal punishment? What they're talking about is about the first year of Bradley Manning's confinement in a military prison, a mil- in a Marine Corps prison in Quantico, Virginia, where he was kept in solitary confinement for a more than 23 hours out of the day. There were incidents where he basically had to be uh, kept naked for inspection. They kept him on a suicide watch. They said for his own protection because he had had a suicide attempt prior to being at the prison. So he was forced to wear what's called a suicide smock, a really uncomfortable outfit that he couldn't tear. He was not allowed to wear his own underwear. They're saying that they did this in order to protect him. Bradley Manning and his lawyer say that, no, this was done to punish him, to humiliate him. Now, there's a United Nations report that seems to support the defense claims regarding how Bradley Manning was treated. Yeah, it's it's a pretty remarkable uh, uh, document. This was back in the spring. It was a special report to the United Nations, uh, a, a pretty standard report about torture and cruel and degrading punishment lists out the sort of countries you would expect to see, and there in that list is the United States. And a specific mention of the Bradley Manning case and his solitary confinement, how he was treated, and how it might actually rise to the level of cruel, inhuman, or degrading punishment. But the person who wrote that report never actually talked to Bradley Manning. No, it was actually a point of contention. Uh, The author of the report, uh, Juan Mendez, had a rather contentious back and forth with uh, U.S. authorities because he wanted to interview Bradley Manning. They said that he could interview him, but they would not guarantee that it would be done without monitoring. Mm -hmm. That goes against the U.N. rules for this sort of reporting. So uh, that just basically is a blank space in his report and a a sore point with the U.N. So is there any chance that the judge will agree with the defense that Bradley Manning has been illegally punished pre-trial and ultimately do what the defense wants, which is to throw out the entire case? No. I mean, I, you know, I, almost almost certainly no. The judge could, and it's not entirely without precedent, but for a case this big, it's almost certain that it will, will go to court-martial. What I think this is about is really kind of a dress rehearsal for the sentencing. The defense has already indicated that they basically are not going to contest the fact that Bradley Manning did the leaking. What this seems like this will be, the same arguments about how he was treated uh, illegally, how he was punished illegally during his confinement, can be applied to a sentencing. And they have this actual formula they call a 10 to 1 credit, meaning that the defense will argue that for every day that he served in his confinement, there should be 10 days applied to what would be his sentence, and that should ultimately be reduced. Okay. The world's Arun Roth has been covering the trial of Bradley Manning for the world and for Frontline. He is going to be heading down to the trial. He'll be blogging and tweeting from the trial for us this week. His Twitter handle, by the way, is at Arun Roth. That's at A-R-U-N-R-A-T-H. Thanks, Arun. Thank you. Who is an extremist and who says so? A report from Russia coming up on the world. Also our GeoQuiz, Answer, and Global Hit. That's all ahead on PRI.
I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on The World, Egypt's president backs off after massive protests over his decree giving himself sweeping powers. President Morsi made his decree, made sure to rally his political base around it, and I think was taken aback by the level of fury that, that his decree had uh, generated. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH Boston. The stakes were high today in Egypt as President Mohamed Morsi met with the country's senior judges. Morsi angered those judges and many Egyptians, too, with a decree that he issued last week. The measure gave President Morsi sweeping powers and placed him beyond the reach of the courts. But after he met with the judges today, the Islamist president changed his tack. He agreed to scale back his decree. That leaves most of his actions still subject to judicial review. This move comes after days of widespread protests against Morsi's decree, and tension is still in the air in Cairo. Isandra El-Amrani writes the Arabist blog from the Egyptian capital. The situation in Egypt right now is one of a standoff. The, the President Morsi made his decree, made sure to rally his political base around it, and I think was taken aback by the level of fury that, that his decree had uh, generated. All this very quickly snowballed in one of the biggest uh, last Friday uh, uh, demonstrations that we've seen uh, in the past year. And people are very nervous that we're going to see an escalation in violence. We spoke with a, a representative of the Muslim Brotherhood last week, and he said that Mercy's decree looks really bad. Uh, but in essence, he said, trust us, these presidential powers will dissolve in a couple of months. How sure can anyone in Egypt be that the president will indeed give up the powers that he just awarded himself? I mean, first of all, the, the, this, this idea, and President Morsi said it himself, that he, people just trust him, is slightly preposterous. I mean, he should know better than this. He should know that Egypt was already, before this decree, deeply divided, that the organization he belonged to, the Muslim Brotherhood, is not trusted by, you know, perhaps it's a minority, but it's a substantial minority of uh, Egyptians, and that trust has to be built and earned. Uh, he hasn't done enough in his presidency so far to really warrant that trust from his political enemies. Uh, nor did he really even reach out to anyone beyond a, a very close circle that didn't even include his advisor on democratic transition, for instance, who should be one of the first person concerned, or his minister of justice uh, in, in setting out the wording and, and the, the terms of this decree. is um, uh, But now, of course, he has the pushback in part from the demonstrators who are camped out in, in Tahrir Square in Cairo and threatening to stay there until he reverses the decree. How much pressure does he actually feel from these demonstrators? I think it's, uh, you know, even if these demonstrators don't represent the uh, overwhelming majority of the Egyptian people, it is substantial enough that that 
what he's done is really divide the country at a time when he should be uh, acting more like a uniter. I mean, I don't think it's easy to do, to dismiss these protests as if it was only a few hundred people. It's bigger than that. There's been uh, violence that's uh, emerged uh, uh, in Cairo, in Alexandria, all around the country, and clashes between Brotherhood supporters and Brotherhood opponents, essentially. I guess he has accomplished one thing, and that's to bring together these fractured forces in the opposition. That is true. He has brought together an opposition now force that, that consists of people from the left and the right, as well as people who were anti-Mubarak revolutionaries and Mubarak nostalgics. And, you know, I, I guess that's one uh, impressive achievement. But, you know, the state of the opposition in Egypt is as much a concern as the state of, of the, the the present regime, uh, President Morsi's regime, because if the opposition is just going to say, we want our way 100%, and he says, I want my way 100%, then they're never going to reach a, a compromise. And, you know, it's already taking an economic toll. We, we've seen losses on the stock market. We're, we're seeing uh, uh, certain uh, foreign donors rethink their policy towards Egypt. The, it certainly doesn't inspire foreign investors with any confidence that political crisis this country has been in now for almost two years, uh, ending anytime soon. So he, he, both sides, I think, have to find the right compromise and end this as soon as possible. Uh, two people at least have already died, let's remember. Sandra El Amrani writes a blog called The Arabist. He's also a visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Nice to speak with you. Glad to be here. Many governments around the globe devote a lot of resources to battling extremism. That doesn't mean, though, that those governments define extremism the same way. In Russia, the Interior Ministry's Center for Combating Extremism is criticized for focusing mainly on political opponents of the Kremlin. Russia's extremism law is also used against any religious minority groups who would hardly be considered extreme anywhere else. Matthew Brunwasser reports from St. Petersburg. This is what extremism sounds like, according to Russian law. Here at the Kingdom Hall of the Jehovah's Witnesses in St. Petersburg, worshippers start their Bible study session with a song. No other religious group has been hit so hard by Russia's controversial law against extremism. In the past three years, the church reports that state authorities have arrested or detained more than a thousand believers, searched 148 homes and buildings, and banned 68 publications. There is no logic, there is no any sense when experts say that this is extremism and this is not. Yaroslav Sivulsky is a member of the church's presiding committee. We are very active. We are preaching, we approach people at home, we preaching on the street, and we are visible. Maybe it's our activity could be viewed like a threat to the Orthodox Church. The church had 40,000 members when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. They now have 165,000. Church leaders say they're being persecuted as extremists when all they're doing is peacefully following their religion. Anti-extremist law in Russia is very problematic precisely because it's so broad and vague. Tanya Lokshina of Human Rights Watch. Human rights groups like hers have condemned the law on many fronts. It is essentially designed for selective use, and sometimes it has been arbitrarily used, including against religious minorities. 
Lokshina says the law's been used to go after sects. She notes that writings by L. Ron Hubbard made it onto the federal list of extremist materials. The list has more than 1,500 titles, half of which are religious. Geraldine Fagan is a religion analyst from the Forum 18 News Service. There was an attempt recently to ban the Hare Krishna's most revered text, which didn't work, partly because there was such a, an outcry in India. Fagan says that every extremism case she's looked at has centered around charges that one religion has said that it's better than others. She says the strategy is identical to how authorities treated any kind of dissent during the Soviet era. And there's in fact a very uncanny parallel between the cases against the Jehovah's Witnesses now and the type of things that were happening in the Soviet Union in the 1960s, 70s and 80s, right down to the use of the word extremism. The extremism law is used against groups directly connected to violence, such as militant Islamic groups in the North Caucasus and neo-Nazis. It's the prosecution of religious minorities which raises concerns. The Russian Orthodox Church denies that state authorities are acting on its behalf by cracking down on the competition. But church spokesman Selavold Chaplin says that Jehovah's Witnesses should be prevented from using inflammatory language, like calling the Russian Orthodox Church a false church. Sometimes they use very impolite phrases, which uh, I can easily call extremists. Some of the texts which they disseminate hurt the Orthodox Christians. The U.S. Council on International Religious Freedom says the situation in Russia is deteriorating as the government increasingly uses the extremism law against peaceful religious groups and individuals. Five years ago, the law dropped the requirement for the use or threat of violence. And starting next year, participating in a banned group will be punishable by three years in prison. For the world... I'm Matthew Brunwasser, St. Petersburg. You can see Matthew's pictures from St. Petersburg there at theworld.org. The word extreme is a pretty good fit for the subject of our next story. Mein Kampf, the infamous ideological tome written by Adolf Hitler, is soon to be published again in Germany. It hasn't been printed there since 1945, when Allied forces defeated the Nazis in World War II. The world's Jerry Haddon has more from Munich. Hitler's most famous work is a mix of autobiography, rant against Jews, and justification for Aryan supremacy. A lot of people think it's been banned in Germany since the war. Not the case, says Magnus Brechtgen of Munich's Institute for Contemporary Studies. It is a copyright issue because in 1945, everything published by Hitler and the Eher Verlag, the publisher, uh, were seized, and uh, then it was given to the uh, Bavarian state by the American command, which then administered the region. Bavaria effectively sat on the book, fearing its reappearance might rekindle the Nazi movement that had just been snuffed out. Breskin says the ministry would have kept new editions out of stores forever, but it can't. By the end of 2015, it's 70 years since Hitler's death, and so the possibility of the Ministry of Finance to control this copyright will expire, and therefore everyone will be able to publish um, Mein Kampf, so Brechtkin and a team of about a dozen researchers have been hired by Bavaria to prepare a new edition before the copyright expires, to steal the thunder of any other publisher looking to make a quick buck. This official edition will have between 600 and 800 pages of footnotes, essentially doubling the original work. Brechtkin says the idea is to put Hitler in context. For example, If he writes about world conspiracies, we will explain 
what the contemporary context of this thinking is, where you will find literature at the time, where he took it from, why he thought so, and where you can find secondary literature now and further information about this whole context of research. Every sentence, so to speak, is an opportunity to give you a window to read further, to understand better, to inform yourself more closely as part of a, of a discourse in a, in a civil society. In its day, Mein Kampf was a key reference for Nazis and sympathizers, but Breskin doesn't think his academic version is going to push anyone today toward neo-Nazism. Here's why. This is Adolf Hitler delivering a speech in 1933. He was a charismatic orator, we know, but as a writer, it turns out he was terrible. There's a lot of consensus on this. Breskin says Mein Kampf makes for a painful read. I can tell you it's tedious and boring to go through these 800 pages, and you really have to force yourself to do it. But these days, few need to read the words of Der Führer to get inspired. Just ask German investigative journalist Thomas Kuban. That's not his real name. Not even his publisher knows his true identity, apparently. Kuban's been undercover in the neo-Nazi scene for 15 years, for the last nine wearing a hidden camera. To recruit new followers, Kuban says, radicals don't sit around quoting from old books. Today's far-right groups, such as the National Democratic Party, or NPD, organize concerts, heavy metal concerts, like this one that Kuban filmed secretly. Kuban has just published a book called Blood Must Flow about his time infiltrating the movement. He says Germany and all of Europe should be worried. The neo-Nazi movement is a danger for the state because the scene is growing more and more. There is a great zone too, which isn't the classic neo-Nazi scene, but a scene where nationalism and ideology like this gets more and more in the middle of the society. And so it's a big danger. Kuban says this mainstreaming of the Nazi ideology has led to tens of thousands of declared neo-Nazis in Germany alone. And they're spreading across Europe, fueled in part by the economic crisis. In many of Kuban's videos, like this one, you see mostly young people performing the Heil Hitler salute and singing about killing Jews. Both acts are crimes in Germany propaganda crimes, but only if you do them in public. So the neo-Nazis throw private parties and then invite thousands of their, quote, close friends and their friends. The police often stand by, helpless to act. So this is the underground neo-Nazi scene in Germany today. The chances that Mein Kampf's reappearance after 70 years will keep these young radicals home Friday night reading are slim. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Munich. A cartographic mystery is at the heart of today's Geoquist. We're looking for the name of the sea that lies between Australia and New Caledonia. The sea has been in the news recently. That's because when you call up the area on Google Maps, there's a curious black blob right in the middle of the water. That blob is identified as Sandy Island on some other maps. This Australian scientist recently sailed to the spot to see if she could solve the mystery. Yeah, we were wondering what this big black blob was doing there. 
And yeah, so that's why we asked the captain to change the course just a little bit so that we could travel through this island, this supposed island. We're going to tell you more about what she discovered after you navigate your way through naming this body of water off the coast of Queensland. We'll be back with the answer in just a bit. Global Hit is coming up on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Maps are a perennial work in progress. They constantly have to be updated and revised to reflect changing borders or new place names. But in this era of satellite photos and Google Earth, it's pretty rare to find actual cartographic errors. Australian scientist Maria Seaton found one, though. It happened while she was on a research vessel with some colleagues. We were actually out in the Eastern Coral Sea conducting a scientific research expedition. And the Coral Sea is the answer to our geo-quiz, as it happens. The place is right between Australia and the French territory, New Caledonia. Maria Seaton and her group were studying plate tectonics beneath that body of water. And when they looked at a Google map of the Coral Sea, they noticed a big black blob. That blob appears on some maps as Sandy Island. So Seaton says they decided to get a closer look to investigate. And when we were approaching the area of this supposed island, we saw that our scientific map showed there was an island there, and yet the navigation charts on board the vessel showed that we had a water depth of 1,400 metres. So that's where we started getting suspicious. 1,400 metres, about 4,600 feet or less than a mile, but that is still deep sea water. Maria Seaton double-checked her GPS location, and sure enough, right where her map showed an island, there was nothing but the deep coral sea. So what happened to Sandy Island? Well, one theory is that there used to be a volcanic island there that somehow became submerged. Seton isn't buying it. It definitely hasn't disappeared. We believe that there was just never an island there. Um, All the navigation charts on board, so all the ships that have gone through the area in the past and taken depth readings haven't found that there's an island there. It must have just been an error that has just been propagated through these world maps. I mean, we've got water depths of 1,400 metres, so it's not really something that is within the human timescale that things have shifted or changed. 1,400 metre water depth, I mean, you're talking about processes that went on for hundreds or tens of millions of years that would have caused these sorts of shifts. So it's still a bit of a mystery how this error propagated through. Well, for now, if you see a black blob on your world map at 19 degrees south, 159 degrees east, you might want to colour it a blue-green, just like the rest of the Coral Sea. For today's global hit, reconnecting with a lost community, the area of northern Sudan and southern Egypt was the traditional home of the Nubian people. But in the 1960s, Egypt built the Aswan Dam, and it flooded Nubian towns, forced the resettlement of about 100,000 people. Many of the descendants of that displaced generation are scattered around the world. Some of them are here in the United States, and they're telling stories of a homeland that's disappeared. Hana Baba has the story. Asada fronts the Brooklyn-based band Asada and the Nubitones. She's lived in the U.S. since she was 12, but she was born in Sudan. 
Sara isn't singing in Arabic, the official language of Sudan. This is an ancient Nubian dialect. Singing in her ancestral language is important to her. The dialects and the languages are being lost um, in our, in my generation, at least. I feel. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that the music is really inaccessible to us. Um, there's not enough recordings of it, not enough bands that really perform it outside of the Egypt and Sudan areas. To me, the Nubian beat is that, that I hear most consistently is that one that goes... Mosno al Musiqi performs his own brand of desert rock, as he calls it, in Washington, D.C. He infuses acoustic alternative rock with Nubian melodies and beats. There was a little boy living on the land of gold. This first song is called Land and Sea, and it falls in the story where the character Desert Boy is um, contemplating whether or not to migrate. A story of movement away from home. Mosno and Asada are part of the next generation of the Nubian diaspora. Back in the 1960s, the Aswan High Dam brought electricity to Egypt, but flooded Nubia and displaced more than 100,000 people. Their homes, farms, villages all disappeared. It was a very, very sad day. Arif Jamal was a child when his family's village in Wadi Halfa was submerged. He recalls the day they had to move. My father left to be with his family, to be with his mother, to be with his uh, villagers. I mean, everything was wrapped and put into one of the wagons of the train, and they all found it in these houses that were allotted to them. Jamal, who teaches African-American studies at UC Berkeley, says a powerful musical genre emerged from that mass displacement, reflecting a profound sense of longing for the Nile, for the land, for the palm trees. The emotional aspect that they have, romanticizing Nubia, the Fenty, Fenty is dates. All over the Nile you have these date palms. You go to the new displaced region, None of them had a date. Late Nubian icon Hamza Ad-Din brought many of these songs of return to the West in the 1970s, and now musicians like Mosno and Asada are reviving that sound and making it theirs. This is Asada and the Nubitones performing Bilad al-Dahab, or the Land of Gold. is the repeating line in it, which is, means I am a human and my address is the land of gold. So th- that deep sense of how do you identify once you've lost your homeland, you know, where does identity now go? Asara and other young Nubian Americans are yearning for a place they'll never see. That's what's really interesting to me. I feel that longing, I felt that longing. The longing to go home and then also the longing to this home that, you know, doesn't exist but they make sure it exists through their music. For The World, I'm Hanat Baba.
We've got some archival photos of the Nubian town of Wadi Halfa that was abandoned and flooded. Check them out at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Lisa Mullins. Hope you come back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston. Supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The Carnegie Corporation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Annenberg Foundation and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.